Hey guys, I am Caleb Giddings and I am Keith Finch. And you guys are listening or watching Gunday Brunch episode question mark. So today's episode is a fun one. Uh, I was texting Keith earlier about this and I was like, what if we did a bit on our the five our five favorite gun dude, gun enthusiast movies? When you talk about a topic like this, there's all, everybody's got opinions, which is what makes it such a fun topic. So what we're going to do is I'm going to name my number five. Keith's going to name his number five, and we're going to talk about them. We're going to go through our list until we get to number one, the best gun enthusiast movie of all time. But before we get started, I want to be clear that we're basing these lists, because you can do this list in two kind of ways. You can do a list of like, what's your favorite fun shoot 'em up movie, which would be a completely different list uh, and would not include the terrible movie shoot 'em up with Clive Owen on it. Or you can do a <laughs> list of what are your favorite gun movies. And when we say that, we're talking about movies where you can tell that the technical consultants cared, the historical consultants cared, and the actors cared so that the way they move, the weapons that they have reflects that sort of passion for firearms that all of us dork wads share. So uh, I'm going to make Keith go first because I've already talked too much for this episode. So with that in mind, Keith, what's your number five? My number five movie is one that a lot of people probably don't think of, and it's Hot Fuzz. I love, the I love movie, that movie, Hot Fuzz. And the reason being is obviously it's, it's a Sean Pegg comedy, and, uh, or Simon Pegg and Nick, Nick Frost. Simon Pegg mm-hmm. and Nick Frost. So it's one of their movies, and they clearly have just an absolute blast with it. But when you get into Hot Fuzz and you get into the whole crazy dude with a, with a uh, barn full of guns thing, he's just got loads of them, just just absolute truckload of guns in here. But when you start looking at all the various makes, models, and et cetera, they're all England correct. Mm-hmm. You have this little little house in the country where they're like, ah, everybody out here is packing. Everybody, all the farmers are packing and all the farmers' moms are packing. And then he's like, oh yeah, like who? And he goes, farmers. Who else? Farmers' moms. Yeah, farmers' moms. And then later, later down the uh, movie when <laughs> Simon uh, Simon Pegg uh, is coming back in after he kind of gets ousted by the cult. Like he runs into a farmer who he then gets in a fight with, and then the farmer's mom comes out packing a gun. And but you look at you look at all the Sterling machine guns and the L1A1 like Eng- English pattern uh, FAL and all these. They're all they're all. British, they would all be English available weapons. And I just mm-hmm. love the attention. They didn't just go to a warehouse that, you know, services weapons for firearms. They were like, well, if you ran into a weapons cache that had been being collected from like World War II to right now, what would you find in it? And they found everything, including a sea mine, which culminates the end of the movie. <laughs> it explodes. All right. Uh, so I absolutely, I absolutely love Hot Fuzz. And I always appreciated that same scene when they go into the armory and it's all like there's a SMLE um, Mm -hmm. that's short magazine Lee Enfield for you people who have no idea what the hell I'm talking about right now. Uh, And well, the other thing too, even the handguns that the main character ends up with are things that you would are things that you would expect to find in kind of a wacko collection. Like there's a chrome 
uh, PT92. It's not a Beretta. It's got a frame mounted safety. Uh, there's a Chrome PT92. There's a lot of like Jericho's and DASA gun and like weird Eastern European DASA guns. All, so stuff sort of that, all stuff that was very much able to be brought into England, especially when their firearms laws weren't quite as tight as they were now. This is stuff you would find. My, my favorite have to be the old Sten guns that they just yes. like pick up and just start running around the supermarket with. The little old lady's got, and the the oh, the woman that he calls a hag, she's got a sterling and she's trying yeah. to burn him down with that. And I'm like, where did you even get this? That gun's 60 years old, but it's great. And I love it. Um, my number five is a little bit different. It's the, it's a movie that is actually largely responsible for why I became a gun nut. And something that I've mentioned in other shows and before in the past is I was, uh, when I was in high school, obsessed with the early colonial period. And we've had this conversation actually on a previous episode. And my favorite movie of that time is one that I have seen a thousand times and can almost quote word for word. And that's Last of the Mohicans. And it is great. And it definitely fits into that category of movies where the technical consultant, who is someone that we both know, as well as the actor, Daniel Day-Lewis, who is a crazy person, uh, <laughs> and the guys who did the guns, they made sure all of the guns were period correct for that early colonial period. Daniel Day-Lewis actually learned how to load and fire a flintlock rifle so that some of this stuff is a little wonky, like when he's reloading on the run by dumping powder into the gun. You could actually do that. It is. It would make the gun work, just not a whole lot of times. But for the most part, everything in that movie is done in such a way that someone who understands how guns worked back then, you can buy it. It doesn't stretch credulity like you get in some other uh, movies set in that period, like any John Wayne movie mm -hmm. uh, set in that time frame, for example, where you're like, that one, that's not the right gun. Two, no. Um, so yeah, The Last of the Mohicans, I love that movie. That movie is why I bought a uh, percussion cap rifle and was very, very responsible for sort of my, that was like my gateway drug into firearms because I was like, ooh, black powder guns are fun. Ooh, guns that I can reload faster are even more fun. Ooh, and then the next thing you know, you know, I'm a revolver degenerate. But yeah, for yeah. me, for yeah. me, it's Last of the Mohicans. And it's just a, it is, it, it, it's a great movie regardless of the gun stuff, but if you enjoy the attention, the technical details and that sort of thing, I and you for some reason are like one of the seven people who haven't seen it, you should definitely check it out. Moving on to number four, number four goes off the ship into the deep end and uh, goes into that category of one that's just absolutely, utterly ridiculous. And I have to throw out that my number four is Commando. Arnold Schwarzenegger's yes. Commando, <laughs> because it takes absurd to such the ninth degree that you can't help but have fun with it. You know nothing works this way. If you, you know anything about farms, you know nothing works this way, but that does not interrupt my enjoyment of the Endless Magazine AK scene where he hits everybody any bit. I don't care. It's Arnold Schwarzenegger in Commando. He has a weird thumbhole stock AK, and it never runs out of bullets, and I'm fine with that. I think that's an <laughs> RPK, actually. Like, I, I think, think that's what it's supposed to be. But it, I, I, so, 
because it's got it's got a 40 or 45 it's a really long mag in it mm -hmm. um, i think it's a 40 but it's got the it might be um i'd have to look it up on uh firearms movie database but i think it's a mac 90 um ak and because it's got the poly thumbhole stock and then he's like, he's got it over his shoulder and then he's got that four rocket launcher, which is a real launcher, by the way. A lot of yes. people don't, yeah, a lot of people didn't think that was a real launcher. It's like, that. no, that one, that one actually is. They didn't mock that up. There was, there was a real shoulder fired launcher that had four tubes like that. Uh, according to IMFDB, which good Lord, the pop-ups he's got going on right now. Um, yeah. That is a Valmet M78. Yeah. That's the one. Yep. <laughs> That's amazing. First off, that they had a Valmet. Like, where did yeah. it prop house get one of those? <laughs> but that's that's rad. And you know, so I love Commando. Like there it is to your point. I, I think Commando is the uh perfect, it's the it's the perfect example of the over-the-top 80s action movie. Like the 80s action movie peaked with Commando, and there was never a better example of what an 80s action movie could or should be. Um, I remember, right. because there's a, there's a scene in it that's so patently ridiculous, like when he crashes into the uh, Army-Navy surplus store and like in the back of the Army-Navy surplus store, they've got unregistered machine guns and yes. guns <laughs> and rocket launchers. And, there's, and for me, watching that again as an adult, I had this moment, I'm like, dude, do, do people think that, that that's a thing? Like where it's just, you know, if you crash through the back of an army navy they, they got the store, good stuff in that the they've got a friggin' crate of unregistered M16s back there. That's not that's not how this works, man. That's not not, not, not how any of this works. It'd be really nice if it did, but man, it's there's way more paperwork than that. <laughs> so much more paperwork. All right, so my number four is a little bit ridiculous, but uh, mostly because it has uh, Kevin Klein playing a cowboy. But my number four is Silverado. And if you haven't seen Silverado, it's a really, really great Western. It really, and if you like Westerns, it is a genuinely lovely sort of homage to Westerns. And it's written by the same guy who wrote one of the Indiana Jones movies and the guy who, who also wrote uh, Empire Strikes Back. So it's, it's good and it has a lot of complex plot elements and it's fun to watch and it is not realistic in terms of the gun handling because there's a lot of hip shooting and a lot of fast draw and stuff like that but if you look at the gear that they're wearing at the time it was sort of the peak of uh, cowboy fast draw competition like back when that was a thing that lots and lots of people did and where there was like real money that could be earned making this and uh scott glenn who plays the main character has a beautifully made cowboy fast draw style holster that is just like it is not something a cowboy in the 1890s would have worn it's cut like three quarters of the way down the front it looks like a race holster but his technique for drawing and firing from this holster is extremely consistent with what was considered the best practices in cowboy fast draw competitions at the time. Why do I know this? Because I'm a fucking degenerate. That's why. <laughs> but, and I, 
And it was one of those things where as a kid, I loved the movie because it had, you know, great acting and good gunfights. And it has a very baby faced Kevin Costner in it, who's got a beautifully made two gun rig. Uh, And then as an adult, as I learned kind of about the history of the shooting sports and where, you know, how things had evolved, I suddenly realized that whoever their technical consultants for this movie were, I guarantee that those guys on their weekends went and shot Cowboy Fast Draw because the way they dressed the actors, the way they set up their guns, the way they set up their holsters was all very much built around that style of quick draw from the holster, fire a shot from kind of that like 90 degree index. And it just, it's one of those things that makes me appreciate the movie more because all of a sudden I can understand why they're doing these things that if you were trying to be period correct, you wouldn't do. Because it added to the story it didn't have to be historical in the context if you added to the story and you added to the storytelling. And I like, mm-hmm. I like people who are able to balance realism with the fact that their audience can suspend some disbelief and come along for the ride. And like Command, Commando was an excellent example. Like if yeah, you know anything sure. about it, like you, you put that over here and you just have fun with it. But there's also a middle ground where you can have a very, very good story. You can have a very good um, progression of the narrative uh, that's very accurate, but also take into elements that are going to enhance your storytelling, even if they weren't period correct. Yeah, like there's a scene where Scott Glenn is shooting uh, cactus needles off a cactus. And I, at like 25 yards with an iron-sided rifle, and I'm like, I don't care this is cool and it makes the story and, and it works in the context of the story. Exactly. All right. So we're on number three now, are we? Yes. Not? Yes. Number yep. three, number three for me, because this is one that got me into modern rifles, which is really my shtick. I love modern rifles was black Hawk down. Oh, interesting. <laughs> not yeah, a movie. I down, would... The extended edition of black Hawk down, especially which is almost four hours long, but it's a really good cut. Interestingly, that's not a movie that I would think of when I think gun movies. I do not think of Black Hawk Down because to me, there's nothing really remarkable about the guns. They're just, you know, M16s and M4s, you know, and stuff like that. They're very simple, but it's very, it's, it was the turning of the era where we were going away from what was the Vietnamic era tech and we are starting to get into what we recognize as modern tech Mm -hmm. and unlike a lot of the 80s action flicks and unlike a lot of um the big budget big explosion type action movies that were you know lone hero with an infinite supply of hit points uh takes on everybody this was just uh as yeah accurate portrayal as they could of what happened during gothic serpent when they lost two black hawk helicopters uh lots of dead lots of injured during this raid to go get you know these two warlord buddies of uh friggin uh Um, oh god yeah the the asshole that guy yeah the asshole in mogadishu so they got the other assholes who were who were uh working for the main asshole um, Adib, Mohammed yes. Farad Adib. Yep, that's him. Uh, so you drop into Gothic Serpent and you see the Rangers and they're running M16A2s, which was the first rifle I picked up in the military, was the M16A2. And 
And then you see the Delta guys and the Delta guys are running 733s, but they've got some cool guy stuff on it, but they've also got like flashlights duct taped to the rifles and everything like that. Yep. So you see a lot of ad big hoc. ass surefire. Yep. So you see a lot of the ad hoc stuff that was just done because they knew it worked, but nobody had like come up with the permanent fix for this. No one had had built it in like we're spoiled as shit today with all mm-hmm. our and lock and everything attaches to the rifle and everything makes sense because it's all standardized and everything like that and people don't realize that like that started to roll out around 98 with the m16a4 adoption and the the knights ras and everything like that like before that it was really like we'll try and come up with ways but really those are plastic handguards and this is an m4 m16 mm-hmm. or you know a colt 733 so but the weapons handling in it was one of the first times I had stepped away from the stereotypical 80s action movie type flick and into something that was trying to be very realistic, very accurate. And so you, you got the scene where uh, Ewan McGregor uh, gets blown up for one of the first times and like he's chill, he's chilling out. And um, I forget the actor's name. Everybody's in that movie. Yeah, but he, he, goes, he, he looks he looks back at McGregor and goes, hey, Grimes, stay away from the wall. And you're like, wait, I know why. Because bullets freaking travel down walls. So you don't want to hug a wall. And then he gets blown up and the dude just kind of looks back real quick and goes, hey, Grimes, you okay? Yeah. His bells raise. He's just absolutely messed up. And this is like when he got attached as just an extra dude on these Delta guys and they're rolling through and they're basically... Like at that point in the movie, they're basically like, well, he's he's going to die halfway through and we're just going to have to leave him somewhere. Uh, then by the end of the movie, they're like, you know, buddy, buddy team guys. And uh, but it was it was just the entry into into realistic gunplay with modern weapons. And that was one that was like, you know what? That was cool because you see people doing all this, all the realistic stuff, the, this stuff that privates and friggin' junior soldiers were taught to do with m16s and never really taught why like smack a magazine on your helmet to see mm-hmm. it around the rear and all this other stuff and you're seeing it all go on and then in the middle of that you'd see like a dude pick up a severed hand and be like well we're gonna need this later and you dump it into dump couch and all kinds of just weird stuff that happens um out there and so yeah it was black hawk down black hawk down's number three because very realistic gunplay, very realistic portrayal of you know soldiers, what they can do and versus what they can't do because they were keeping an accurate body count throughout it. It's like everybody who went down in the movie went down in, in real mm-hmm. life. So they didn't they didn't have to mock that up at all. Yeah, I, I obviously I think you know everybody loves that movie and there's uh the first time i saw it i was actually was shortly after i had joined the military for the first time uh the second time i saw it i was on the so blackhawk the company you one they used to be cool uh two they used to have an awesome they used to have an awesome bus and they would take this bus to events and i was on this bus with people from blackhawk who may or may not have been in Operation Gothic Serpent, and we were watching this movie on the TV in their bus, and they were like, yeah, that happened, or yeah, that didn't happen, and I was just like... But yeah, I remember that. You remember that? 
Yeah, I was yeah. like, you did what with the what? Okay, well, alrighty then. I um, I'm just gonna sit here and listen. That was a, a very fun time, and it has really always endeared that movie to me. Uh, it is interesting that you went with such a realistic choice for your uh, number three movie because I am crossing into fantasy land uh, for number three and going with the unsurprising uh, yet ubiquitous selection of John Wick 2. Not John Wick 1, not John Wick 3, John Wick 2, that's the best one. And it's also the best for the combination of gun handling that sets up being able to suspend disbelief when it comes to the number of hit points that John Wick has because he's basically unkillable. And the reason why I like two the best and two is the best from the gun handling perspective is because his gun handling in John Wick 1 is good. It's solid. The fundamentals are there. He doesn't look overtly clowny. Uh, he moves okay. But after the runaway hit status that one was, they stepped it up for two. The guns are better. The friggin' uh, movement is better. And you cannot look me in the eyes and tell me that that sh the friggin' the three gun shootout in the catacombs is not one of the top three best gunfights ever captured on film. Period. Stop. It yeah. is without I, a doubt. Can, it is. You can make an argument that that's the best gunfight ever captured on film. Full stop. And for me, the best part is when he just starts wrecking dudes with the shotgun because. My other thing that I like in addition to revolvers are shotguns. And when he's like, oh, these guys are wearing body. What I really liked about that scene is they sort of established in a weird way that shotguns wouldn't work great on the guys that were obviously wearing body armor without saying it. Because for whatever reason, when he switches to the gauge, all he does is like leg shot, face shot, leg shot, face shot. And I'm like, that would really fuck somebody up. Like, take a load of double out buck to the thigh and then one to the grill. Yep, you're, well, you're and, game and, over. Any, and anybody he's smoking in the chest at that point, because that's the shot he gets, he goes and he follows up with her. He finishes out. Like, he got one at close range, straight in the chest. That dude's down. And then he's, like, standing on him. He's like, all right, I got to put one in. Wham! Finishes him off. And it's like, you're acknowledging the fact that these guys coming at you are almost as good at you as you. These are realistic threats. It's not like the freaking Star Wars Episode Six Stormtroopers, where it's like, oh my God, you're getting beat up by teddy bears. Right, first off, uh, <laughs> Ewoks are cannibals, savage warriors. And if you think about like how strong is a chimp at that size, right? Like right. Ewoks probably have like chimp strength, okay? Just saying. Gotta, I will defend the Ewoks here for a second. Are they ridiculous? <laughs> Should would the movie even better if they were Wookies? Yes, but sometimes you got to cut you, cut George so, Lucas a break. Yep. But that hey, I'm, I'm not not trashing on six. There, it's just the fact that we had a sliding scale of danger there. And one of the things I hate, one of the sins I hate most in film, is a ridiculously easy bad guy because they're stupid or incompetent yet somehow they're supposed to be like we should we should fear you why well that was one of the things as an aside that always bugged me actually about star wars is because stormtroopers in non-main star wars media right like if you're not watching any of the movies if you're reading the books but that that got you know turned into not canon or even if you're watching like the clone wars show like 
the clone troopers are bad mamma jammas in the show mm-hmm. um you know they and stormtroopers dangerous they are stormtroopers in the non like mainstream uh movies are dangerous they're you know it's supposed the stormtrooper is actually supposed to be like the equivalent of the the empire's marine corps they're supposed to be like elite level troopers and that is not reflected obviously you know you you know hero inaccuracies blah 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 but that does bother me a little bit as well but before we get to your number two my last thing on john wick and the reason why again i i stand number two so hard and i actually didn't enjoy like let me be clear i enjoyed john wick three because it's a great action romp shoot 'em up. But John Wick 3 required me to actually really ratchet up my suspension of disbelief uh, way mm-hmm. over what I had to do with John Wick 2. And if people who know uh, the shooting sports probably all rolled their eyes as hard as I did when they were like, nine millimeter major, and then he was shooting armored people with it. I'm like, the hell out of here with this. Nope. It's just a hot nine mil. It's like a three fifty. Yeah, that's that's point. it. That's all you got. It's it's not changing the ballistic coefficient to something like uh, you know four point six. Right. It's not like he was like three oh eight wind mag. Yeah. You're not sitting there like all right nine millimeter major three hundred ruam here you go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, but that's why John Wick two for me is one the best John Wick movie and also number three on my gun movie list. So what's your number two? The number two, we're going to go back to John Wick, but we're going to encompass the series. So okay, you and I fair, must be fair. really close on this. I will concur completely that John Wick 2 is the best of them. And it's because they balance very good gunplay with minimal suspension of disbelief. They didn't go out too far on a limb, despite the fact that, oh, sacred cabal of assassins with all of this infrastructure in place and all this other stuff, you still didn't have to go too far out on the limb to enjoy the movie and say, no, I, I, I only have to suspend my disbelief just a tiny little bit to have a great time with this movie because everything else feels a level of realism that I can get behind. But seeing the progression from John Wick 1, which, yeah, which was just a stupid, simple storyline that went very well because it was well run and Keanu did a great job with the character and the detail there into the John Wick 2 story, which was so rock solid that you were able to take the ridiculous elements of 3, which were, again, a really fun, you know, shoot em up genre, but they're sitting there like, oh, he went to the desert with Halle Berry and you know, then he had to go on his spirit quest into the right into the desert and find the Maharaja of assassin people, who I guess is just chilling in the desert as a nomad instead of uh, as, like, I don't know in Shanghai or any, something. anywhere else. Like I don't know, maybe he set up himself up as like a mega multi billionaire in Dubai or something like that. Nope, that he's just fun. a desert nomad. So you, you had all those ridiculous elements, but still with a great action flick. And one of the things you could that have done I without the horse serious. kicking people to death, though. Yes, that was that yeah. was that, that for me, that was I was like, OK, calm down. Like could have done without the horse kicking. But other than yeah. that. Yeah. But the whole thing, especially with the firearms handling being so good so clearly the element they were trying to get through like they, t- they took it to the nth degree in three where it was very much like okay not only is the firing ha- firearm handling going to be good but terror and tactical product placement 
product placement. Like, that's okay, I get it. So much product placement. So I have to give my number two to that series, uh, the, the whole series, because you just, you, you took a basic storyline, you knocked it out of the park, doing it well, doing the details right. And my favorite line is still from John Wick 1. And it's, it's one of the two most expressive lines I've seen in artistic media. And it's, it's um, Vigo, the dad. And um, like he, he calls up the, the car shop place. Yes. And he's like, hey, I heard, I heard you kicked out my son and you were disrespectful to him. He's like, well, yes, sir. He um, stole John Wick's car and killed his dog. And, you know, and he's like, do you want to explain to me why you did that? Like, I'm about to bring the hammer of God down upon you and squash your little, you know, shop shop away and just like murder every everybody you knew because of the disrespect you showed me. That's how powerful I am. And he's like, well, sir, he um, stole John Wick's car and killed his dog. And he just turns profile to the camera and goes, oh, that is the most expressive single line <laughs> that line does establishes that line does a better job of setting up john wick as a badass than any other stuff they could have done in the no, movie they, they could have had a long drown out drawn out like look at all this action stuff because other movies will do that they'll have a a montage of of past events uh marvel marvel's done that in a mm -hmm. lot of uh movies where here here's a montage of the missions that you know captain america went on and this is why he and Bucky are so good friends and they're badasses. And this was the team they were on taking care of all this stuff. And that's how they set that up. But that single line, the fact that you have this friggin' mafia level boss, who's clearly a crime family patriarch. And he's like, well, your son just fucked up big time. He made the big whoopsie. And he's just like, oh, just yeah i know that's great solidifies that this man is terrified of john wick and all we've seen of this guy so far is his wife died he got a puppy we're sad the puppy's dead because friggin theon Greyjoy is an asshole <laughs> yeah i mean no, we all we were all happy that we got to watch theon Greyjoy die so that yeah. was that was good times um yeah no it i mean a I, better I, death in that movie than it was in the series it was. It really was. You know, I know. I, I, yeah, I, I can't disagree with that. Uh, I think that once you start getting into like these, you know, top two movies, it's very much like minute details, which, mm -hmm. for example, my number two is uh, probably one that you have to be a real hardcore gun nut to even be aware of. But it's The Way of the Gun with mm -hmm. Benicio Del Toro and Ryan Philippi. Philippi? 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 Philippi. Anyway, uh, with Benicio Del Toro and Ryan Philippi. Uh, and if you haven't seen it, it's it's all it's perennially rotating around the streaming services. Just start Googling until you figure out which one it's on. But what makes the movie so good is again, it's it's actually not that great a movie. I'm gonna be honest. Like if you're evaluating it, you know, in terms of movies like Last of the Mohicans or Heat or it's not it's not as good the acting's not as good the directing's not as good but dear lord is that movie just a sappy love letter to gunsight and the weaver stance 
and 1911s and behind mm-hmm. traditional IWB carry. The technical consulting on that movie is so good that it looks like they took Ryan Philippi and Benicio del Toro and put them in a gun site and put them through the entire gunsight curriculum that was available in 1989 and then was like and now go do this movie because they are perfect they do such a great job with what at the time was the the absolute pinnacle of defensive gun handling techniques it's it's john wick it is the same level of technical proficiency that Keanu Reeves displays in John Wick 2 is on display with Benicio del Toro and Ryan Philippi, uh, just for you know, 19, like the late 80s, early 90s gun handling. Um, and I will say James Kahn's character, the Bagman, is my favorite character in the movie. And that has nothing to do with his insistence on carrying nothing but a five-shot J-frame, which he reloads with speed loaders from his pockets, which is Again, to the credit, uh, one, uh, James Kahn is actually a Gunsight graduate. Not a lot of people know that about him. He actually went to Gunsight to prepare for Thief uh, and learned a lot about gun handling there. This was back before studios would like hire people to come in and do this. Mm-hmm. And uh, the way his character carries that J-frame, which you know, just kind of uh, carries it. He actually carries an appendix for a bit carries it in a pocket, moves it around, and just reloads from loose speed loaders in his pocket is very on brand for how that sort of character would carry a gun like that and would carry their reloads. So for me, yeah, it's a, uh, it's it's got to be Way of the Gun at number two. And Way of the Gun also, it does have some really, really quotable lines. Like, there's always free cheese in a mouse trap. Or my favorite, does this seem like a brains operation to you? <laughs> That's right up there with Heath Ledger's, do I look like a guy with a plan? Exactly, yeah. All right, so what's your number one? Number one, I had to, and I had to think about it because there are a lot of them and I didn't, I A, didn't want to be stereotypical, but B, I also uh, wanted to be honest about it. And uh, when I started looking at it from that, one, one came screaming right to the top and that's going to be Extraction with Chris Hemsworth. My it's such a fucking good movie. I forgot yes, that movie it was. until just now. Yes, it was. It was such a good movie, and it balanced everything I wanted out of a, of a realistic side action shooter. Because you take the most simple of action tropes, which is the washed-up hero. You put a lot of modern elements into it, like PTSD from GWAT and... and you know, bad things happening around his life. He's not an invincible guy. You get that right off the bat. This dude's on prescriptions. This dude's um, on like antidepressant meds. He's drinking heavily. There's a chicken in the house. Um, there is a chicken he, in the house. That's, there is a, a, that's a real thing in the movie. And it's, yep. <laughs> and so like, he's he's clearly like living down on his luck in the backwoods of Australia, but also kind of trying to live his best life after the military, after, you know, his son died, which you get early on that, like something happened to his son that was bad. Uh, But then you get the sense that he's a professional operator. He's a professional Merc and uh, he's very good at what he does. You get that very early on. Then you have 
you, you have a lot of competing elements. And one of the things that I give the movie credit for is the gun handling is absolutely excellent. It's spot it on, and not just spot on for Hemsworth. And I forget the Indian actor. He was a part of his, his foil in that, that he ends up teaming up with. Um, but not only were they spot on, but like the Indian army and the, and the special forces uh, it was in or wh wherever they were. I, I forget if it it wasn't. I think India. it was India. No, I think it was actually. Yep. Um, and um, so like the military forces that are rolling in, they like those guys clearly know what they're they're doing too. So they're like rolling through with AKs in their shoulder. They're looking through the sights. They're room clearing in teams the way they should be. So instead of uh, this sense of you know invincible good guy with unlimited hit points uh versus just clown level bad guys everyone's a risk so when he's hiding he's hiding from dangerous people trying trying to pick him up on top of the the whole the scene right at the beginning where he gets ambushed on the boat and they have to run back into town and then they have to get they throw uh he throws the kid back in in the car and they start driving through town it's an excellent excellently shot series and he's facing two very real threats at the same time he's facing the cops and the military trying to catch his ass um because he grabbed the kid and they want the kid back and he's facing like the elite operator dude who was working for the kid's dad who's trying to stiff the the, the uh, mercenary company on the fee because they can't pay it they don't have any money so he's like trying to like grab the kid real quick and be like haha no takes he's back so he's got him by uh, all the while, the military is trying to get him back to establish the whole power base again that they had going. And it's just so competently shot. The entire sequence seems very gritty, very realistic. And as you're going through this, you know, Chris Hemsworth, Chris Hemsworth is taking damage. He's injured. Mm -hmm. He's like falling. He gets hit a couple of times in the vest so he can keep going. And then at the end of the sequence, like he hits the other dude with a truck after he's had the living snot beat out of him. They fall into a couple of floors. They're both in rough, rough shape. And he just drives off beat to crap. And you're like, all right, well, he's got a lot of hit points, but he lost a lot of them. Yeah. No, so I, there, was, there was just great elements throughout the whole movie of great gun handling they clearly cared cared about making it realistic. Reloads were realistic, um, and he's got some of the John Wick type gun handling going on. Mm -hmm. But it's it's very it, it's couched in both him and his opposing forces are much closer together. And him and the Indian dude he's facing off against are like neck and neck. They're evenly matched because he was this like special forces operator for India, and Chris Hemsworth was for Australia. And so they're like right there. And it's basically, all right, whichever of us gets in the lucky shot, that's what's going to happen. And the first lucky shot went to Chris when he hit the other guy with a truck. So, yeah. I mean, you know, as, as ways to take a dude out, hitting him with a truck seems a lot more effective. Um, so, you know, it's funny because I've only watched Extraction once. And it's one of those movies where I'm like, man, that was really good. I should sit down and watch it again. But I've discovered uh, in this era of endless on-demand entertainment, I watch, I am way less likely to watch a newer movie multiple times than I am to sit down and watch an older movie that I saw at an earlier stage in my mm -hmm. life multiple times, which 
interestingly is what brings me to my number one movie and it is not a movie that most people would think of as a gun movie it's much more of an adventure movie it's the brendan fraser mummy movie the first one not the mummy returns which i also love the mummy returns i love it super hard but i love the mummy and i love the way that in the movie the guns are used as almost supporting characters because the way that you know there's uh in the beginning of the movie there, you know, Brendan's, uh, Brendan Fraser's character is a part of the French Foreign Legion, and they have this gun battle with these Bedouins who turn out to not be Bedouins, blah, blah, blah. Watch the movie. If you haven't seen The Mummy at this point, you are listening to the wrong podcast. But anyway. Don't you, <laughs> um, don't you but, dare bring up the Tom Cruise one. That, no. There, what Tom Cruise one? Tom Cruise made a mummy movie? What are you Tom- talking about? Yeah, I know. That's terrible. I mean, they had scars <laughs> in it, so I figured you would like it, but... Anyway, I, I do I do love scars, but there are better places for me to go see and enjoy scars, and it's not that. <laughs> so, and Brendan Fraser's got these weird double action French revolvers that I actually found a used one, not one of those movie guns, but a used one in a store a few years ago, and regret to this day not buying it. He's got these great double action French revolvers that serve as a prop, serve as sort of a character development bit for him. But one of the scenes that really sort of drives home his like casual badass adventuring characters when he unrolls his leather bound murder uh thing and it's got his 1897 winchester in it and shotgun ammo and 1911s and more revolvers and he's very casually like checking his guns and um uh rachel vice who plays evie who i still have a crush on uh is like do you think we're gonna need all of that and he's like we might and it's such a great, it's such a fun movie. <laughs> and the gun handling is done in such a way that, again, it's not like, it's not super realistic. Although I will say it is very reflective of how people would have shot at the time. Mm-hmm. When they're using shoulder fired weapons, they actually put them up into their shoulders and shoot them. They're using handguns. They use them with one hand because nobody shot with two hands in the 1930s. Uh, so, or actually, that wouldn't even be in the 1930s. I think mean, that's, in, but anyway, <clears throat> regardless of that, it is done. The gun handling works for the period, but it works also in the context of an adventure movie, in the context of sort of that fun Indiana Jones style romp, where again, the guns are there to be a supporting character almost and not necessarily be this super realistic thing. But because of how it's done and because of some smart prop selections like the 1897 Winchester, yeah. the weird French revolvers, the guns work and they make it in and they, and they add a sense of fun and enjoyment to the movie that may not have been there if they had gone with some more vanilla choices. Very, very much so. Because, yeah, you have Rachel Weiss and then you have like John Hannah's character, who's this weird, just like obviously the comic relief of it because mm-hmm. he's always always saying something weird he's always trying it's to derringer and and then like when it when it comes time to man the fuck up he's just like well give me the give me that rifle i got this and they're like wait you and he's like yeah i was on the shooting team oh and the lewis that's in uh the mummy returns uh yep. the lewis gun that the um egyptian guy i don't know yeah. the actor's yeah. name um, and i don't um, want to um, get his uh obed fear plays yes. him. Uh, 
Yeah. So when he pulls the Lewis gun off the biplane and just, you know, just starts walking around killing mummies with it, I'm like, I'm into this. We are, we have, because, and that's one of those moments where, again, you can, it, it's sort of like why I don't mind, uh, here, perfect example, him with the Lewis gun doesn't bother me, even though that's unrealistic, because the universe has constructed rules where there are mummies. So a guy single wielding a Lewis gun isn't entirely unrealistic to me. Nope. It's sort of like why, for me, Atomic Blonde doesn't work, because the action is set up to be too realistic and too gritty, and I don't buy Charlize Theron beating all that ass, even if it's set up from the point of an unreliable narrator. But a Black Widow movie will probably work and the Black Widow character works because the Atomic Blonde universe is set up as being realistic. The universe where the Black Widow exists in has literal gods and people with uh, magic hammers. So mm -hmm. I can buy a 110-pound woman beating the crap out of people in this because I've already agreed that things are happening in this universe that don't happen. Yeah, we're, we're, not, we're not tied to reality in the Marvel universe. So Black Widow can be as badass as we want her to be because, oh yeah, by the way, Thor travels through lightning bolts, magic yeah. teleporter thingy, and he can just show up and, you know, he's on it. By the way, we had this dude collecting magic rocks who wanted to end half of life in the universe. That dude also exists in this universe on top of every other big bad that they had to smash throughout the cinematic universe from, you know, original iron man where it was you know we made a bigger angrier iron man suit and that's what i'm going to take you on in there tony stark to um like thor ragnarok where he's like he beats up the ang angry devil guy in the beginning and then he has to fight his sister through the rest of the movie and then he yeah. brings angry devil guy back like nope he's gonna end the world but he's gonna end you too have at it you too like that's part of the universe there and that's why, to bring this back to guns and to wrap up this episode, that's why I was never mad at Scarlett Johansson using Glock 26s in the first Avengers movie. Because, hey, we're just accepting that this isn't reality here. Mm -hmm. And it poke, it, they, they poke fun at it. Like, you, you in uh, Age of Ultron, you run into Hawkeye and he's like, no, <laughs> I, have I have a bow and arrow. We're fighting None robots on a flight island. None of this makes sense. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, well, I, I mean, I think Hawkeye is the most based character in those films. But anyway, guys, that is it uh, for this episode. We will be back with a new episode next week. So thank you, everybody, for listening. Keith, do you want to thank our sponsors that uh, pay us to have this show? Absolutely. We have, as usual, Aero Precision. We have DeSantis Gunhide. And we have the wonderful Rocky Brass. That if you're looking for uh, those elusive 80% right now, they occasionally have those in stock there. Uh, occasionally. Ghost guns. Occasion, got a ghost guns. So terrifying. Who are you going to call? Rocky Bratz. <laughs> call Rocky Bratz for all your ghost gun needs. All right, guys. We will see you next week.